Twelve Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Twelve Years in the Saddle, Chapters 36 through 42. Chapter 36 the arrest of Jerome Loftus. While Ann Vernon helping to hold court in the trial of Joe Blake, who was alleged to have killed Sheriff Tom McGee in Hampill County, I received a warrant from Bowie County for the arrest of Jerome Loftus, who was wanted for stabbing a man in New Boston ten years before that. I did not know that Loftus was in Vernon until Mrs. Aiken, the proprietress of the hotel, told me that a man by the name of Jerome Loftus was in the hotel the night before to see me. I asked Mrs. Aiken when the man would be back, and she replied, in a day or two. I told Mrs. Aiken that I would be glad to see Jerome, as I had not seen him but once, and that was a few days after the fight which I had had with his brother, Hill Loftus, in the dugout in the Comanche Strip. I began watching for Loftus, and the second morning after the lady told me that he was in town, I went into the gentleman's sitting room and found him standing by the stove. I did not recognize him, however, until after he had spoken to me and told me his name. When he told me that he was Jerome Loftus, I merely asked him if he had eaten his breakfast, and he replied that he had not. The first table was full, so I told him that we would watch our chance and eat at the next table. When we went to the table, I let him sit on my right side, and I made it a point to get through eating before he did. Leaving the table after breakfast, we went into the gentleman's sitting room, where I found about twenty-five men standing around. I did not want to arrest Loftus in the presence of these people, and, noticing that the stove in the ladies' sitting room was heated up, I said to Loftus, let's go in yonder where there is a good fire. After we got in the room, I told Loftus that I had a warrant for him. Where from? he asked. From New Boston, I replied. I searched him then, but found nothing but a pocket knife. I told him that I did not want to handcuff him, nor put him in jail, that for his sake I didn't want people to know that he was under arrest. I then notified the sheriff of New Boston that I had his man, but it was three days before he came to Vernon after him. I never jailed Loftus, though, nor put handcuffs on him, but I kept him in my sight all the time. I told Loftus to go with me when I took Joe Blake to the trial, and for him to sit near Blake, the defendant, so I could watch both of them at the same time. When the sheriff came after him, I told him that Loftus had behaved well, and that he deserved the good treatment which he had received at my hands. I told the sheriff that I would appreciate it if he would also treat him as courteously as the circumstances justified, as Loftus had been a good citizen ever since he stabbed the man ten years before, and that he had been a good prisoner. Just as the train was pulling in, Loftus asked me to let him speak to me. We walked a few steps away from the sheriff, and I told him that I was ready to listen to him. He asked me if I knew what he thought of me, and I told him that I did not. I think you have been giving me dirt ever since you arrested me, he replied. I immediately turned Loftus over to the sheriff, telling the latter that he had better handcuff and shackle him securely, as I had learned that I was greatly deceived in the prisoner when I recommended him so highly a few minutes before. I told Loftus that I was mighty glad he let me know what he thought of me before it was too late for me to do him any service. The sheriff did as I told him, and securely shackled and handcuffed Loftus, much to the latter's displeasure. Loftus stood his trial in New Boston and came clear. 
A year later, I met him on a Fort Worth and Denver train while I was going to Fort Worth. I was talking to a lady when Loftus came through the car and greeted me and told me that he wanted to see me in the smoker. I told him, all right. He then turned and went back into the smoker. Who is that gentleman? The lady asked. I told her that he was Jerome Loftus and that I had once arrested him in Vernon. I also told her what Loftus said to me when the train rolled into Canna, and, I added, that he might want to call my hand for telling the sheriff to handcuff and shackle him. You ought not to go into the smoker if you think there will be trouble, she replied. I told her that I would go anyway, but when I entered the smoking car, Loftus got up and introduced me to four or five men and treated me as cordially as he knew how. He motioned me to a vacant seat and later on apologized to me for what he had said to me before he boarded the train in Canada. You treated me so nice when you had me in your charge, he said, that I have been sorry ever since then that I told you that you had been giving me dirt, for I knew at the time that you had not. What prompted you to make such a remark, then? I asked. I was mad at the world in general, he replied, for I had led a better life ever since I cut the man in New Boston, and had worked hard on the ranches, and had saved my earnings and accumulated a little bunch of cattle. I had gotten a little start in life, and felt happy, but when you arrested me I realized that it was all up with me then, and knew I would have to spend everything I had to come clear. I was reckless, and never thought about what I said to you, but I am ashamed of it now, and hope you will forgive me and forget that incident. I told him that I had already forgiven him, and we were good friends ever after. Chapter 37 The Capture and Trial of Swin In 1896, the citizens around Amarillo were constantly losing their fat cattle, and could not locate the cause, and I was informed by John Curry, who lived in the north edge of town, that he suspected old man Crump and his two sons, Albert and Bill, who lived two miles north of town, who were running a butcher shop in Amarillo. Albert Crump lived in town and did the selling of the beef. After learning all of this from John Curry, I decided to lie around Crump's place and try to catch him and his two boys in case they were stealing cattle. I watched the old man's place for quite a while. One evening, Sam Dunn and Hank Siders, uh, both cattle inspectors, and I waylaid Crump's pasture, and a little before dark we heard a gunshot at his slaughterhouse. We waited about half an hour in order to give him time to get his beef skinned, but we stayed a little too long. Billy, his son, about 22 years of age, took the beef to the city and placed it in the butcher shop. I followed the hack and got there in time to stand out in the dark and see Billy carve the beef. The quarters of this beef looked to me, from a distance, to be about a two- or three-year-old animal. I could see them from the light he had in his butcher shop. I said nothing to Bill, not even letting him know that I was in town. Hank and Sam and I went back to Old Man Crump's. It must have been about ten o'clock at night. I called out at the gate and learned that Old Man Crump had gone to bed. He got up, however, and came about halfway from the house to the gate and asked me who I was. I told him that it was Sullivan. He told me to wait a minute until he went into the house to put on his shoes, as he was barefooted. I waited, although I believed that he was trying to make medicine or work his rabbit foot on me. When he got to the door, I saw his wife slipping out to the west gate in a stooped position, making her way to the slaughterhouse. I told her to come back and not go about the slaughterhouse. She obeyed my command. Then I asked the old man if he had killed a beef that evening. He said that he had. I told him that I wanted to see the hide. He said that it was in the slaughterhouse. We three dismounted and went to the slaughterhouse. 
and came very nearly being taken in by the worst set of dogs I ever saw. He must have had eight or ten vicious dogs. I think he kept those dogs on hand to bluff people so they would not come anywhere about his place. When we arrived at the slaughterhouse, he pulled a hide out of a barrel of brine and threw it on the floor, with the hair side up. It being wet, it rattled as if it were a green hide. This hide must have been seven or eight days old. It was so dark in the slaughterhouse that I could not tell whether this was a fresh hide or an old one. I rubbed my hand over the hide and got the scent of it, and told the boys that the hide was an old one. I struck a match, and, as the slaughterhouse was open at the top, the wind would blow my matches out as fast as I could strike them. At last I told Mrs. Crump to go into the house and bring me a lamp or a lantern. She remarked that the wind would blow the lamp or lantern, either one, out, and that we had better take the hide into the house. So I told the old man to take hold of one end of the hide and hank the other. When we got into the house and threw the hide on the floor, I discovered that it was black and that it was an old one with a brand on it. The old man asked me to let him step out of doors. I granted him this privilege, knowing that he was going to the slaughterhouse. The old man went directly to the slaughterhouse, and I went directly to the same place. When I reached the place, I heard him drop the hide in his barrel of brine. Then he picked up a zinc tub to put over the barrel, and, as he did so, I arrested him. We left at once for town. After turning him over to Hank and Sam, I went to meet Billy to arrest him and to keep him away from his father, so they could not make medicine together. I arrested Billy and asked him a few questions in regard to the killing of this beef. I asked him if he had a bill of sale for the beef, and he stated that he had. I asked him the name of the party he got the beef from, but he said he could not remember the name, still claiming that he had a bill of sale for the beef. I talked with him until his father was within hearing distance of him, and he called out something to Billy in German, and I told Billy to turn his wagon around, and I took him to town and turned him over to John Bell, telling the latter to hold Billy until I arrested his brother, Albert, who was asleep in the butcher shop. As soon as I arrested Albert, he asked where Pa and Billy were. I told him that I had them under arrest, too. Lord have mercy, was all he had to say. I placed the old gentleman in jail and took Billy and Albert to my camp and shackled Billy to one of the ranger boys and Albert to another one, not letting either one of them speak to their father, nor to each other. The case was called for trial in Amarillo, but the defense got a change of venue to Clarendon, Donley County, and Billy was convicted, but got a new trial and finally beat his case. The old man and Albert were also acquitted in their trial at Clarendon. John Veal and Bill Plemons, two attorneys from Amarillo, defended them. Mrs. Crump had three small children. Judge Plemons and Judge Veal were shrewd enough to borrow three more children who lived in Clarendon, keeping the six children around Mrs. Crump all the time the trial was going on. In their speeches, the attorneys for the defense would refer to the old lady and her six small children, keeping the old lady constantly crying and rubbing her hand over the six children's heads. When she and her six children would cease crying, Judge Plamons would step over to the woman and tell her that if she didn't keep the children and herself crying, that the old man and the two boys would go to the pen as sure as God made little apples. Once the old lady spoke out loud and said that she had already cried so much that she couldn't cry any more if the whole family went to the pen. This caused quite a laugh in the courtroom at the expense of Messrs. Veal and Plamons. Chapter 38 The Capture of I Heart and Spray while at headquarters camp at Amarillo in 1896, I received a letter from Jim Loving, president of the Cattlemen's Association, 
asking me to go to San Angelo and out to Big Lake in Tom Green County and look through Major Look and his brother's pasture for burnt cattle. I went to San Angelo at once and hired a wagon and team and got Sheriff Shields and Cattle Inspector Moore to go out to Big Lake with me. I also took two Negroes along, one to drive and cook, and the other to rustle the horses. While on my way to Big Lake, which is 105 miles from San Angelo, I drew on my imagination considerably as to the kind of a lake I was going to and the scenery around it. I thought the lake would be full of good, clear water, and that I would see lots of antelope, deer, wildcats, coyote, and lobo wolves going there late in the evening for water. The lake was a mile and a half long and half a mile wide. We reached the lake at sunset, and our horses were very tired and thirsty, and so were we, but we didn't find a drop of water in that lake and had to drive until late in the night before we could find water. Early the next morning, we went to Luke's pasture, where we spent the three following days rounding up the cattle and looking for burnt brands. We expected to find about a hundred burnt cattle, but only found three. We took them to San Angelo and gave them back to their owners. Then we arrested Major Look and his brother and turned them over to the sheriff, and they were reported to the grand jury. The day after I had arrested the two Look brothers, a man walked up to me on the street and asked me if I was an officer, and I replied that I was. Do you see that man standing on the sidewalk, about twenty steps from me on my left? He then asked. I replied that I did. I want you to arrest him, he said. What for? I asked. He stole a five-dollar pair of pants from me at the hotel the other night, and he has them on now, he answered. I asked him if he would swear to the pants. If I could get to examine them, I would, he replied. I arrested the man and took him to the rear of a nearby store, and the man who made the complaint went with us, and after examining the pants, he swore that they were his. I then searched my prisoner and found on him a pistol and some letters. Reading one of the letters, which was from his best girl in the nation, I gained some valuable information concerning this man's record. A portion of the letter read this way. Pet, you have treated your baby bad by stealing those horses and that saddle. The officers are hot on your trail, but my people are trying to make them believe that you are in Kansas and not in Texas. You have gone to a mighty good place to get caught, Pet, and you had better get out of that state or you will be taken in. I am perfectly surprised at you, Pet, for committing that crime, and I don't see how you could have done it if you loved me. I learned that this man was Jack Ihart, a noted highway robber and horse thief. I turned him over to the sheriff, and he notified the officers in the nation, and they immediately came after him, and he was very much wanted up there. Carrying Sweetheart's letters got him into a lot of trouble. The following night, a man asked me if I wasn't Sullivan, the ranger, and I told him that I was. My name is Ed Smith. I guess you have heard of me before, he said. I am an ex-convict, but I have something important to tell you. I told him, all right, and he asked me if I wanted a man by the name of Hill Loftus. I told him that I did, and that I wanted him very badly. He asked me if there was a reward out for him, and I told him that there was. Then he told me that if I would give him half the reward, he would point Hill Loftus out to me. I told him that I would do that. He then told me that Hill Loftus was in the back end of a saloon gambling. I went to the hotel, got my handcuffs, and put them in my pocket. Then we went to the saloon, which he claimed Loftus was in. Reaching the front door, I told Smith to go in and see if Loftus was still playing cards. He came back and reported that Loftus was not in there. We then went to every saloon in town, and I sent Smith into all of them to see if he could find Loftus, 
but he always reported that he failed to find him. Smith then said that Loftus had two ants living near the depot on the edge of the town, and that he might have gone to their house to go to sleep, so we struck out in that direction to find our man. It occurred to me that Smith might be leading me into a trap, as the house where the two old maids lived was surrounded by timber, and there were no lights in that part of the town, so I kept a close eye on the man who was helping me to find Hill Loftus. After reaching the depot, we inquired at ten or twelve houses to find out where the two old maid sisters lived, and were beginning to think that we would not succeed in locating the house, when we finally came to a house where the yard was full of pretty shade trees. The front gate was tied at the bottom with wire, so we went around to the back gate and found it also tied so it couldn't be opened. Thinking this place was vacant, we went across the street and aroused a lady, who told us that the two old maids lived in the house where the yard was full of trees, which was the place where we had tried to open the gate. I told Ed to go in the house and see if Hill Loftus was there. If you see him, I said, you tell him that you have won a big piece of money at a gambling dive, that a big game is going on, and that you are willing to stake him with money, and both go in together and see if you can't win a hundred dollars. I told Smith that I would hide at the corner of the paled fence, and that I would watch the gate, and when he came out I would join them. I gave him instructions to stop and roll a cigarette when he came out, so that I would have plenty of time to catch up with him. Smith carried out my instructions to the letter. When I came out, I caught up with them and said, Hello, gentlemen. Both of them spoke very cordially to me. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I remarked that I had started downtown to get a drink of beer and asked them where the nearest saloon was. They pointed one out that was about forty yards in front of us. I invited them to take a glass of beer with me, and they said they would with pleasure, and we went on toward the saloon. While walking along, I let Hill Loftus get a yard ahead of me, and I eased my six-shooter from the scabbard, holding on the trigger all the time so it would not click when I cocked it. When I got everything in shape, I stepped up to his side and threw my six-shooter cocked in his face and ordered, Hands up! He at once threw his left hand above his head, but placed his right hand over his heart. Both hands up, I quickly said, and he immediately put his right hand up. I then pulled my handcuffs out, and, giving them to Ed, I told him to put them on Loftus, which he did. Then I arrested Ed, too, and asked him his name. He said it was Ed Smith. I did not want Ed, but did this to keep Loftus from thinking that Ed had told on him. Turning to the other man, I asked if he wasn't Hill Loftus, and he said he was not, that Jack Spray was his name. He said he was from Greer County. Have you been passing yourself off as Hill Loftus? I asked. No, I have not. I told him that I would hold him anyway, and I carried him over and placed him in jail. I told Ed, in Spray's presence, that I would guard them both. But when daylight came, I turned Ed loose, of course. But I took the other man to Vernon, where I learned that he was wanted in the Indian Territory for horse theft. This man really was not Hill Loftus, but he told Ed that was his name, because he knew of Loftus' bad reputation as a fighter, and he wanted Ed to be afraid of him. Hill Loftus is the man with whom I had such a fight in the dugout in the Comanche Strip, 25 miles from Fort Sill. Chapter 39. A Prize Fight Prevented While I was stationed at Amarillo in 1896, our entire company, and three other companies were ordered by Governor Culberson to go to El Paso to keep the Fitzsimmons-Mare fight from being fought in Texas. We stayed in El Paso 18 days to see that these prize fighters didn't pull off their exhibition in Texas. We also had to put down the tough element of the town, 
as thieves, robbers, pickpockets, and other classes of criminals were given a great deal of trouble. One night, while City Marshal John Sillman and I were on duty, we arrested 26 burglars and jailed them, one making his escape. John Sillman is the man who killed John Wesley Hardin in an El Paso saloon. One night, while in that saloon where Hardin was killed, I met John L. Sullivan and Patty Ryan, prizefighters. While Sullivan and I were trying to rake up a relationship, I noticed that Ryan's nose had been broken, and I asked him what caused it. Fourteen years ago, he replied, Sullivan and I had a prize fight in Mississippi, and he warped my nose. About that time, I heard a lot of shooting on the street. Sullivan, Ryan, and I were in the back of the building, and about three hundred men, the largest portion of whom were full of beer and whiskey, stood between me and the front door. When I heard the shooting, I was satisfied that some of the ranger boys had gotten into trouble with some tough character, and I decided to go to the street as quickly as I could and see what was the matter. I finally pulled through this crowd of men and reached the door, and when I stepped out upon the street, I heard three more shots. I located the direction of the shooting from the flash of the pistols, and discovered it was a special ranger trying to arrest an El Paso gambler, and a deputy sheriff from Greenville who had fallen out over a game of cards and had come out upon the street to settle their trouble. When the two men reached the street, the ranger told them to be quiet or he would arrest them. The gambler got mad and fired at the ranger, and a general shooting scrape followed. Though each man fired several shots, no one was hurt. We arrested the two men who had resisted the ranger and took them into the saloon through the back entrance. Much excitement prevailed among the men in the saloon, but after placing the two prisoners in the keeping of other officers, I went out the back way and walked around the building to guard the front door as a crowd of men were trying to break it down and get into the saloon. I had ordered the door shut when the shooting first occurred because I did not want anybody else to get into the building. There were about 400 men, all tough characters, standing in the street with their six-shooters out, shining like new money. They tried a number of times to make me let them in, but I held the door shut against them. I knew that most of them were robbers and cutthroats, and that if they got into that crowd of men in the saloon, they would spot out the diamonds and watches and shoot the lights out, and great slaughter and robbery would come off. General W. H. Mabry, our state adjutant general, came to me and told me to put my pistol up. I told him that I could not do it. About that time, Eugene Miller, a special ranger, who was helping me to hold the door, yelled at me to look out. I glanced quickly around, and there, standing behind me, was the man who stole Bill Cook away from me in Roswell, New Mexico. I could see the handle of his six-shooter, which he held in his hand behind him. Recognizing the man in a moment, I turned and asked Miller why he had called me in such an exciting manner. Everything is all right now, replied Miller, and the man left before anything else was said about the incident. In a few minutes, however, Miller asked me if I knew who that tall man was who stood at my back when he called to me to look out. I told him that I did that it was the man who stole Bill Cook from me, and with whom I had had some trouble as the result. Miller then told me that the man had his pistol cocked and pointed at my spine, and that when he called out to me, the man threw his hand and pistol behind him. It seems that the man was about to take advantage of the moment, while confusion reigned, and murder me from behind, because of his grudge against me. I told Miller that if I had caught the man pointing his gun at me, I would have killed him on the spot. I can safely say that I saw more tough characters in El Paso at that time than I ever saw before in my life, or ever expect to see again. They were drawn to that town by the prize fight, which was about to be pulled off there. It took 150 officers to preserve order and prevent the prize fight.
The fight was pulled off in Old Mexico, about 400 miles down the Rio Grande River. I wanted to go and see the fight, but I was requested by the adjutant general to remain in El Paso with 11 rangers and help guard the three banks, which I did. Chapter 40. A Bank Robber. We went to El Paso in November 1896 with four companies of rangers to prevent the prize fight between Fitzsimmons and Mayer. After staying there about 18 days, I started back to headquarters. Two of my men asked me to let them get off at Bowie for a day, and I consented, after instructing them to come to Amarillo the next day, as we would likely have a great deal of work to do. I continued on my way to Amarillo, and when I reached Wichita Falls, I received a telegram from C. Madsen, the chief marshal at El Reno, I.T., to come there and surrender to him as I had a fight in the Comanche Strip. Two of my boys, Jack Howell and Lee Queen, were on the train with me, and I told them to get off and go to El Reno with me. They requested me, however, to let them go on to headquarters and get some clothes, and they come on to El Reno on the following day. This was agreeable to me, so I spent that night in Wichita Falls, and the boys joined me next day, and we started to El Reno after wiring to the other two men who were on the northbound train coming from Bowie to join me. When I arrived at Bellevue, I received a telegram to return to Wichita Falls on the northbound train, as Frank Dorsey, the cashier of the bank at that place, had been killed and four men wounded by robbers. My two men and I then boarded the northbound train, where I found my other two men who had stopped at Bowie. Captain Bill McDonald also was on the northbound train. Mr. J. A. Kemp, the president of the bank that was robbed at Wichita Falls, was on the southbound train, and I told him to return to Wichita Falls with me, as he was needed at his bank. I stepped into the office and asked Anna Nice Moore, the operator, to wire the operator at Wichita Falls, to have me six horses and saddles waiting at the depot when I arrived at Wichita Falls. I asked George Clark, the conductor on the train, to put me in Wichita Falls before schedule time, but I think, from the rate the train ran, we reached Wichita Falls a little ahead of time. Mr. Kemp sat down by me and asked me what the trouble was. I told him that his bank had been robbed, his cashier, Frank Dorsey, had been killed, and four other men had been wounded. He turned pale, and tears came into his eyes as he said, Frank came to me this morning and asked me to let him resign, as he had a presentiment that he was going to get killed, but I talked him out of it. Three months before Dorsey was killed, I was called to Wichita Falls to guard the two banks, as twelve suspicious-looking characters had been seen camping out near town, and the citizens thought they were bank robbers. I took six rangers with me, and we guarded the two banks for three days and nights. We went out one evening to the place where the men had camped, and found pictures of Bill Cook, Jim French, Frank Baldwin, Cherokee Bill, and other noted outlaws, thus confirming the suspicions of the citizens who were uneasy about the banks. While we were guarding the banks on that occasion, Frank Dorsey came to me several times and said that he feared that he would be killed, but I told him there was no danger, as my men could hold out against any robbers. The suspicious characters left the country after we began guarding the banks, and the citizens of Wichita Falls no longer felt uneasy, so we rangers packed up and went back to Amarillo. Three months passed away, and everything was quiet and peaceful in Wichita Falls until the dreadful day of the bank robbery, when the cashier, Frank Dorsey, was killed. The night before the robbery, Dorsey told his wife that the presentiment that he would be killed by bank robbers had come back to him stronger than ever. He said that he would resign his position the next morning, that he believed that if he didn't, he would be killed in a short time. His wife told him that it was all imagination, that he ought not to give up his work as he had a family to support, and the president of the bank thought so much of him. 
He was easily persuaded by those arguments not to resign, and the next evening his dead body was carried home to a heartbroken wife, and the president of the bank was on the train hurrying back to Wichita Falls, mourning the loss of a fine cashier and valuable friend. When we arrived at Wichita Falls, my horses were standing at the depot, but just as I stepped off the train, twenty or thirty men rushed me into the depot, telling me that the bank had been robbed and Frank Dorsey killed by two men, and they could talk of nothing else but the reward, two thousand dollars, which had been offered by the bankers for the capture of the robbers. I told them not to talk to me about rewards, but to give me the descriptions of the two men. They did so, and we started out after them. Some of the citizens of the town were already out after the two robbers, but after we had gone a short distance, we met most of them coming back to town. Some of them, however, turned and joined us in our pursuit. It was related to us that as the two robbers, whose names I learned to be Elmer Lewis and Foster Crawford, started out of town, Frank Hodgester killed Lewis' horse, and he rode behind Crawford until they met a man driving a little dun mare. They relieved this man of his animal, which Elmer rode bareback. They soon met two men, who were plowing in the river bottom, and took their two large plow horses, releasing the ones they were riding. These two plow horses were so large, though, that they didn't last long, and we soon found where the robbers had tied them in a thicket, and then waded the Wichita River. Some of the men went a mile below this place, and crossed the river on a bridge, and others waded the river where the robbers had, but we saw nothing of them that day, although we were satisfied that they were in some of the thickets in that vicinity. About eight o'clock that night, we discovered them, after they had come out of a thicket, crossing an open space of prairie to another thicket about 700 yards away. Captain McDonald, Billy McCauley, Jack Harville, Bob McClure, and Lee Queen entered the north side, and I the south side, and we all came upon the robbers about the same time and demanded their surrender. When we found their six shooters on the ground, a few minutes later, we discovered they were cocked, which showed that they came very near fighting us. They had their Winchesters hidden at Wichita Falls, but after they robbed the bank and were leaving town, the citizens prevented the men from getting them. We recovered the money they had taken from the bank, $677.10, and then went to a house close by and got supper, after which we returned to Wichita Falls, arriving there about four o'clock in the morning. We guarded the jail the remainder of the night and all the next day, and as everything seemed to be perfectly quiet, and as there were no signs of trouble, we left that evening on the northbound train for our headquarters at Amarillo. When we reached Childress, we received a telegram stating that 2,000 citizens were breaking into the jail. When we reached Clarendon, we received another telegram stating that they had hung the robbers. The citizens of Wichita Falls got $1,200 of the reward, and the other rangers and I received the rest, $800. A few days later, I went back to Wichita Falls, where I met Elmer Lewis's mother. She was standing at the head of the table, watching me while I ate my dinner, and when I had finished, she asked me to come into her room as she wanted to talk with me. After we entered, and she had closed and thumb-bolted the door, she asked me to take a rocking chair. No, I do not care to sit in a rocker, I answered, for I had a rib broken not long ago, and it pains me when I sit in a rocker. I have been wanting to see you ever since I came to Texas, she said. I am Elmer Lewis's mother. Where were you at the time Elmer was hung? I was at Childress. How far is that from here? About 120 miles, I replied, but I was at Clarendon, 60 miles further up the road, when I received the news that the two men were hung. If you had been here, do you think you could have prevented the hanging? I think not, as they were 2,000 strong. Of course, if that was the case, you could not have prevented it, she replied. The jailer has my watch that my son had, she continued, and I wish you would get it for me. 
How old are you, Mrs. Lewis? I am thirty-six, she answered. And you are so young-looking that the people here do not believe you are Elmer Lewis's mother. Well, you see, I am Scotch-Irish, and you know we hold our age well. She asked me again about the watch, and I told her that if it was her watch, she should have it. She then asked me to show her the way Lewis and Crawford went after they robbed the bank, and I pointed out the way to her, but never took my eyes off her, for when she bolted the door it made me somewhat suspicious, and when she asked me to have a rocking chair it made me more so, for she knew that if I sat in a rocker I could not get to my pistol easily, and I concluded she had not asked me in her room for any good purpose, as she kept her hands under her apron all the time. She then asked me for my address, thinking, probably, I would lower my head while writing it, but I had an envelope in my pocket which had my address written on it, so I took the letter out and handed her the envelope, watching her all the time. We talked a while longer, and when I arose to leave, I walked backward to the door, keeping my eyes on her while I unlocked it, and then told her goodbye. I believe it was her intention to kill me, as she tried every way to get me to take my eyes off her, but I was on the lookout. The watch, which she spoke of, was advertised in a newspaper, and a man and his wife came from Oklahoma and identified it, telling the jailer it had three letters in it, and that they were very dim, but could be seen upon close inspection, which proved true. They said the watch had been stolen from them. It did not belong to Mrs. Lewis. I received two letters from her, after she went back to Missouri, in regard to the watch. I learned from the sheriff of her county that she was Elmer Lewis's mother, notwithstanding the fact that she looked so young. Chapter 41. A Call to Hartley. In 1897, while a detachment of us ranger boys were stationed in Hartley, looking after crime, as Hartley, at that time, was a very tough place, full of thieves and other bad characters, gambling and all kinds of lawlessness going on day and night, I was told that a man, in the back end of a saloon in a private room, was playing cards and putting up United States stamps in the place of money. I went into the room and looked on and saw him lose $6.75 worth of stamps. I asked him if he was a postmaster. He stated that he was. I asked him where he was from. He said, from Coldwater, Texas. I told him that I guess I would have to arrest him, as I was satisfied he was not a postmaster and that he had stolen those stamps. After I had arrested him, he then told me that he was a deputy postmaster, and then I was satisfied that he had robbed that post office of these stamps. I held him in Hartley for a few days, until I could find out from the postmaster of Coldwater if this man was his deputy. The postmaster answered that he was, and that he had robbed the office of these stamps, and for me to be sure and hold him, and he said this man also had a negro woman for his wife. I wired the United States Marshal at Wichita Falls that I was holding this man for robbing the post office at Coldwater. We had no jail or calaboose in Hartley, so I kept him under guard three days and nights. Then I took him to Amarillo and placed him in jail for the nearest marshal to come and get. Before leaving Hartley, I learned that his negro wife was on a visit in Amarillo, so after reaching Amarillo and placing him in jail, I thought it a good idea to hunt his negro wife. There were only six or eight negroes living in Amarillo. I located the house in which she was stopping, and found that three men and three negro women were stopping at this place. I knocked on the door, and someone inside told me to come in. I went in and asked, which one of you women is Mrs. Joe Jackson? A yellow negro woman answered and said, I am Mrs. Joe Jackson. Then I told her that I had come from Coldwater, and had met her husband, Mr. Joe Jackson. But when I left Coldwater, I continued, your husband told me to hunt you up, saying that he was very sick at Coldwater. She said she was very sorry, and that she was glad I had informed her, and that she would take the first train for Coldwater. 
I then told her that her husband had told me the county they had married in. She told me that it was in Burleson County, Texas. I told her that I liked her husband very much, and that I thought he was a nice gentleman. She stated that he was very good and kind to her. I told her that he had told me who married them in Burleson County, but I had forgotten. She said old Squire Blackburn had married them. She also stated he had two brothers, and also had two sisters, and that his father was dead, that his brothers, sisters, and mother disliked it so much for him to marry her that they left at once for Coldwater, and had been there ever since they had married. After getting the information from her that they were legally married, I then arrested her and placed her in jail, where I had placed her husband about one hour and a half before. When I got the jailer up, about one or two o'clock in the night, he opened the door, and she spoke. Her husband recognized her voice from his cell, and asked, Is that you, Annie? And she answered, It is. And then she asked, Is that you, Joe? And he answered that it was. This officer has got me arrested, she replied, and told me he met you in cold water, and that you were very sick, and stated for me to hurry home, and he got me to make a statement about us being married, and after making my statement, he arrested me. That gave the state a case, as it was a violation of the law for a white man and a Negro woman to marry in Texas. Chapter 42. On the Trail of Train Robbers. While in Amarillo, I was notified, in 1899, by the adjutant general, that a train was robbed at Banbrook, 14 miles from Fort Worth, on the TNP Railroad. J.V. Good, superintendent of the Fort Worth and Denver, had a car sent for our horse and saddles. After loading the horses and saddles on, we crawled into the caboose, and the car was hitched onto the southbound passenger train, and we arrived in Fort Worth on schedule time. Sheriff Ulyss of Tarrant County joined us at Fort Worth, and Superintendent Thorne of the T&P Railroad had our car hitched to an engine, and we left immediately for Weatherford. Everything between Fort Worth and Weatherford was sidetracked, and, having an open track all the way, we made a quick run, arriving at our destination that evening. We unloaded our horses and saddles, and spent the night in Weatherford. The following morning, we were joined by the sheriff of Parker County, and all of us started out together to look for the robbers. At Springtown, the sheriff of Tarrant County had to leave and go back to Fort Worth. We searched the whole country around Weatherford, finally striking the trail of two men, who were well armed, each having two belts of cartridges, a Winchester, and six-shooter. One of the men was mounted on an iron-gray stallion, while the other was mounted on a black, bald-faced, stocking-leg horse. We followed the trail of these two men and struck the Fort Worth and Denver Road at the town of Sunset. While crossing the country near Red River, I lost the trail, but I learned that a Joe Couch had loaned an iron-gray horse to a stranger about two weeks before the robbery and had never seen it since. I looked for Couch, but failed to find him. I decided that the robbers were playing fox on us and had turned back, so we dropped back, too, going to Decatur, and tried there to get all the information that we could concerning the fugitives. While I was in Decatur, I had occasion to call up Irby Duncan in Fort Worth on a little business, and Colonel R.D. Hunter, president of the T&P Coal Company, got the other end of the line for a few minutes, and asked me how I was getting along with the train robbers. I told him that I had lost their trail, and it did not look like I was going to find it again. He asked me if I had been notified that the Rock Island had been held up and robbed the night before. I told him that I had not, so he notified S.B. Hoovey, superintendent of the Rock Island, that I was in Decatur with six rangers. I asked Colonel Hunter to have Captain McDonald, who was in Fort Worth at the time, found and brought to the phone. McDonald gave me a little more information about the Rock Island holdup, and I quit the trail of the Benbrook robbers at once, and went to work on this other case. 
I went to Bridgeport, reaching there in a few minutes, and found transportation, which Superintendent Hoovey had sent me. A little later on, Hoovey came up to Bridgeport from Fort Worth on the train that was to pull us to Red River. Hoovey and I discussed the situation at some length. Before leaving Bridgeport, I found Joe Couch, the one who loaned one of the Benbrook robbers a gray horse. I found him playing cards, and I took him and his horse with me on the train to Red River. Reaching Red River, I learned that the robbers had boarded the train on the Texas side, and while the train was crossing the river, they relieved the passengers of all their money and jewelry. Arriving in the little town of Harrell, on the other side of the river, we discovered that the officers of that community had captured the robbers and placed them in the depot, where they were kept under guard. We put the prisoners and the officers, who had them in charge, on our train and took them to Duncan. The marshal of that town claimed the men, but they were given over to the Texas authorities, and we put them in jail in the town of Montague in Texas. They were tried twice, and succeeded in beating their cases. I was on hand at the trial, and we encountered lots of toughs who were in town to intimidate the court and get their friends clear. I was satisfied that these men were the same men who had held up the train at Benbrook, and I told the others that. I received a letter from Sheriff Pat Ware of Cook County that there was an iron-gray stallion in the livery stable at Gainesville, so I went at once to that town and had the sheriff point the horse out to me. I also asked the sheriff if he knew the man's whereabouts, and he said he thought he was across the river in the Indian Territory. I learned before I left headquarters camp a second time that this gray stallion belonged to a man at Henrietta. Pat Ware and I went across the river to look for this man, who had stolen the gray stallion, and about seven miles on the other side we learned that there was a suspicious-looking stranger picking cotton at a certain farm. We went at once to this place, and going into the field, we saw a cluster of men all picking cotton. I had never seen the man before, but ever since I had been on his trail the first time, I had had him described to me so often that I knew him before Pat and I had gotten close to him. Pat also knew the man from the description I had given of him. He surrendered to us, without any trouble on our part, and we asked him, in the presence of several witnesses all around him, if he was willing to go across the line without any requisition. He said that he was, so we handcuffed him, and, hiring a horse, we left with him at once for Gainesville. When he neared the river, he remarked that he believed that he would not cross the line without a requisition. We told him that we would show him whether he would cross over or not, as he had said before fifteen or twenty witnesses that he would go into Texas with us without requisition. He then went on to Gainesville with us without any further trouble. We gave him a bed in the Gainesville jail that night, and took him the next morning to Henrietta, where we notified the owner of the gray horse that he could get his property. Our prisoner was wanted for selling mortgage mules, as well as for stealing this horse. The Benbrook train robbers, whom we came so near capturing several times, were finally caught in Fort Worth by local officers. End chapters 36 to 42